Welcome to the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Joy Pullman, the executive editor here over at the Federalist during a very busy news week. We're welcoming Dr. Scott Atlas to the podcast. He's a senior fellow in healthcare policy at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and a former member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Um, he's out this week on de actually December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, maybe that's fitting, with his brand new book. It's called A Plague Upon Our House, My Fight at the Trump White House to Stop COVID from Destroying America. Dr. Atlas, welcome. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So as, as I mentioned to you, I wanted to spend this podcast talking, you know, two thirds half uh, about the content in your book, the angle that it's taking um, instead of another round of media hysteria. So let's just start out, though. Could you give me your two minute reaction to the current kind of hysteria cycle about COVID, the so-called Omicron variant? Sure, it is a continuation, the hysteria of uh, what we saw for the, the previous year and a half. Uh, and uh, that, that I, I call it hysteria because uh, it, again, is denial of basic science, denial of the data that we see in this variant, and denial of what everyone who's really a thinking uh, scientist or doctor who's had medical school level virology would expect. We expect, as a pandemic virus evolves, to see mutants, mutations, so-called variants. That's what happens as a pandemic becomes endemic, which means um, a virus that comes and goes at low levels without a lot of lethality. And so this is a strain. This is a, a, a variant. Uh, the, 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 the expectation is that variants will occur. That's point number one. Point number two is variants, when they occur, typically survive because they're still very contagious, but they're less lethal. This is the expectation. That's uh, sort of what we've seen actually, despite all the hysteria about the Delta variant, it was very contagious. And it's true, a lot of people died, but the ratio of people who got the infection divided by the people who died was higher. In other words, the people who died did not go up as much as as commensurate with the increased infections like the original virus. And that's what will likely happen with this virus. That's what we hope to happen. We don't know. We're, we're, you know, there's always going to be variants and there's always going to be some concern. But what we see on the denial of the current data, which is point number three, is that the doctor even who discovered and reported the variant, Dr. Coetzee, who's a public health doctor in South Africa, even wrote a column in the UK's Telegraph today, the cases are not lethal. They're not common, but even if they are, there has not even been a single, in her words, a single hospitalized patient. These people have very mild disease. We are acting, we, the people leading our, our nation, our governors and the people in other countries, as if this is some kind of a panic mode, and she is flabbergasted. Dr. Coetzee wrote this, and people should look at her column, because this is a variant. Again, we expect the variants. It's not causing significant illness at this point. And so to sit there and panic and start locking down and changing policy is irrational. And it is really an indictment of the lack of critical thinking that we have seen since the beginning of this. And let's go back and then start kind of talking about the beginning of this, which you were around for at a very high policy level. Um, so first, I would just like to open with uh, your take on the White House COVID task force meetings that you were a part of and the interactions that happened as a part of that ta task force between the top doctors on it. Was there a real debate and discussion amongst those doctors on that task force regarding their later public recommendations? No. Uh, but I'll go back and give it an explanation more than that. Um, okay. I came in at the end of July, beginning of August as an advisor to the president. Of uh -huh. That means six, seven months after these people had been on the task force. I wasn't there at the beginning, although I was writing and researching as an outsider. Mm -hmm. uh, when I got there, my first task force meeting was, say, second week of August. And I was stunned at what I saw during the next three and a half months when I was there. And what I was stunned about 
was I was very different from the doctors on the task force. The three mm -hmm. doctors who were made the main doctors on the task force, uh, which I called in the book a sort of a troika of doctors, were Dr. Deborah Burks, Dr. Fauci, and Dr. Redfield. Dr. Redfield's head of the CDC. Dr. Fauci was the most visible face of this whole public health effort, but he was not in charge of anything on the task force. And Dr. Burks was in charge of the medical side of the task force. She was the sole person called task force coordinator. She gave the numbers every day. She personally was in charge of writing and was the outflow of information advice to all the governors. She flew to dozens of states, visited all of their public health officials. She was the official federal task force output to the states for policy guidance. I visited one single state. That's one difference. And that was Florida at the request of Governor DeSantis at the end of August. Uh, and so what happened during this task force, sort of the doctors of the task force, why they're so different? Doctors Burks and Fauci are government bureaucrats. They have been in their government positions for 40 years. I came in as a health policy scholar in health policy for 15 plus years and 25 years as a medical scientist in academic medicine doing clinical research and teaching in patient care uh, and in diagnostics. And so I would come into the meetings when there was a question. I was prepared with a, a, a briefcase full of scientific papers from the world's journals, the newest data, the newest publications. I was the only one whoever came in with any scientific papers. The other doctors never cited a scientific paper. They never critiqued a scientific paper. They never refuted any of the data that I showed. The only refutation by them was silence and then calling me an outlier. Uh, and that's not what science is. What science is, is knowing the material, looking at the data, critiquing the studies, understanding what's a good study and what's a poorly designed study and therefore invalid, and citing the literature and, and going through it. That's, I was the only doctor who did that. The only data that was shown by those three was Dr. Burks showing these sort of uh, very simplistic uh, compilations, tables of numbers of cases per day and test positivity stuff. I mean, this is stuff you download from a website. Uh, so I, in addition, was speaking to some of the top epidemiologists, virologists, and infectious disease scientists during the entire, almost every day while I was there and months beforehand. And in fact, I didn't just bring in data. I brought in the experts. I, I brought in top epidemiologists, pediatric infectious disease experts, public health experts from the West Coast to the East Coast, from Tufts University, Harvard, Stanford, UCLA, in to meet the president in the Oval Office. This is in the book in detail uh, with a photo. Uh, and I also brought them in to talk to the vice president. Why? Because my goal was to give more information. The patient, the, the, the country is in a healthcare crisis. The goal of an advisor, the role of an advisor is to bring in as much expertise as possible. Not only did the other doctors not bring in anyone else besides their own uh, bureaucrats, Dr. Bur we scheduled that meeting with the president so that specifically Dr. Burks could attend. Dr. Burks refused to come the day before the meeting. She said, I'm not going. Between okay. these doctors that you brought in and the president? That's right. I brought in people, four experts and myself. We sat in the Oval Office. Dr. Burks refused to attend, yet later complained to the media that somehow she said, quote, parallel streams of information were coming into the president that she was that didn't go through her. And she actually complained to the House of Representatives subcommittee on this. This is public information. Now, this is the opposite of a scientist to me. My, my uh, job, again, is to bring forward information, bring forward expertise, you know, and discuss it critically. Uh, that kind of person that would refuse to attend a meeting, to me, that's the behavior of someone concerned with their own status, their own image, insecure about their knowledge, possibly. I don't know what the motive was, but it's, it's, it all sort of fe feels like a government bureaucrat rather than a medical scientist, because as a medical scientist, you're commonly involved in debate. In fact, when I walk into my job at Hoover Institution, I walk in knowing there's a lot of smart people in the room, and mm -hmm. I better know the information because I'm going to be called out 
And there are going to be people that know information. I'm used to being challenged. That's what my whole career has been. In fact, you've had threats to your position there at Stanford, you know, students and as fellow faculty, <laughs> you know, directly, you know, asking for your head, you know, kind of, and not just an academic way, but also, you know, cultural, social pressure. Right, exactly. And, you know, the job here in a, in a complicated situation, like everything in life, is critical thinking. There was a stunning lack of critical thinking. There were very simplistic conclusions made uh, without questioning it. Even some of the non-medical people in the room on the task force uh, would bring up challenges to what was being claimed by the other doctors. Because, uh, you know, at some point I was burned out from this. It was really... Uh, Completely irrational. I've never worked with people like this before, frankly. Uh, you know, and so at some point, uh, you know, I felt like I was talking to a wall. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of interest uh, in uh, sort of a I never I'll give you another example, if I may. I never saw any of those three disagree with each other. Not once, not a single time. That's sort of unheard of when you're expressing uh, an interpretation of what's happening in a complicated situation. Not so, even in like a soft way, such as, you know, oh, what about this portion of the data over here? That no, there was never a discussion of the of the data like that <laughs> at all. Uh, I was the only one, except for these simplistic tables and charts that anyone could make who's in, you know, frankly, high school. Uh, you know, that's just not what the role of the advisor, uh, you know, if, if you're not a critical thinker, you have no business uh, in that kind of position. I could say it this way. You don't have to be a critical, you don't have to be a scientist to be a critical thinker, but you better be a critical thinker if you're going to be a scientist. Uh, and, you know, this is sort of goes without saying, but there, there, I was it, just thinking that. And, you know, incident after incident, which I, I list, you know, I go through a lot of these in detail in the book, but uh, I think it was shocking. And frankly, we can never let this happen again. I mean, this is one of the, the big lessons. Uh, I was stunned at the lack of competence. OK, at the lack of critical thinking, at the lack of rigor, at the lack of preparation, uh, at the lack of questioning. And, um, you know, uh, this can never happen again. I mean, we must. So this is a, 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 a sort of a historical record that I tried to put down of actually what happened. So people are aware because it's happening still. Uh, and the problem with the whole thing is that. I said Dr. Burks gave the advice to all the governors on the federal side. I mean, that that, that was the federal yeah. advice. Uh, the governors implemented it. They took and did the advice for what I call the Burks-Fauci lockdowns. They yeah. did it for the months before I was there. They did it during mm -hmm. the three and a half months I was there. They're and still they doing it, it, you know. And it's still continuing. Yep. And those I mean, I'm here in Indiana. It's been 21 months of, you know, unlimited executive rule by a Republican governor, unchecked by a Republican legislature. They're still doing the Burks-Fauci stuff, even after, you know, there's people like you who are there and, and, and you know, and, and who can say there was no data and there's still no data. Or well, now, you know, 20 months in. It's just been no data. Okay. The yeah. data has been out and it shows it the following. The it shows the lockdowns failed to stop the spread of the infection. The lockdowns mm -hmm. failed to stop the deaths of the high risk elderly and the lockdowns destroyed millions of people. In fact, the lockdowns because of the mismedical care, because of the, uh, the psychological and, and you know, impact causing drug overdoses and uh, serious psychiatric uh, damage, that, that because of the lack of immunizations, because of the failure to go and call an ambulance, half the patients who had a stroke or heart attack didn't call an ambulance. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, two uh, half of the people on chemotherapy, there's 650,000 cancer patients in the U.S. alone on chemotherapy, half of them did not get their chemotherapy during the spring lockdowns. Okay, we have a tripling of self-harm by teenagers to doctors, self-harm visits, meaning burning skin with cigarettes on your own skin, cutting your wrist. We have a, an explosion of anxiety and depressive disorder. We have one out of four college students thinking of suicide in June 2020 from the isolation. That's that's from the lockdowns. We have an estimate of 890,000 extra deaths in the U.S., over the next 15 years because of the unemployment alone. The lockdowns killed people. And these lockdowns, like I say, were implemented. So if you have a problem thinking that the policy, that advice that came out of the federal government killed people or lost lives, you better ask Drs. Burks and Fauci about that because they advised the policy that was implemented. 
we are seeing in a in a in a in a final statement on this this what i call an orwellian attempt uh in the public in the media by people like dr burks and other lockdown advocates this orwellian attempt to blame people like me who were opposed to what was implemented for what was implemented and uh this is uh the ultimate uh example of you know uh sort of moral bankruptcy in my view i mean we must learn the lessons from this i outline the lessons in the book and I then talk about the big issues that we're really exposed, that we're facing now as a society, because it goes well beyond COVID. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot there. I'm going to just keep going. One of the things that I, I've always wanted to know, and now I have the chance to ask you, is about what do you know about what the White House knew in the early days or ever about how much of China's alleged response to COVID um, in the early days, so we saw all these social media things, you know, people just falling over in the streets. COVID doesn't do that to people. You know, we saw these picture of, you know, locking people in their houses in China. Um, I mean, and we know China is a master of propaganda. It's, you know, does that all over the world. How much did the White House know about what China told the world and it allowed to be sent to the world about what it was doing about COVID was actually propaganda meant to terrify and stampede foreign nations? What do you know about that? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Unfortunately, I don't have a good answer because, uh, again, like I didn't come in until, say, beginning mm-hmm. of August. Uh, I was not involved in any discussion. I never heard any discussion. I was not privy to any discussion mm-hmm. uh, whether or not it occurred about uh, sort of that sort of issue that uh, if there's propaganda coming out of China, which I think I most people would assume, yes, Um you know, we have a country filled with propaganda uh, also. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. I'm not equating them. I'm just saying yeah. our media is, uh, is astonishing in what they've done. And I, I, I'd like to talk about that at some point. But um, I don't know. I never heard a discussion of that. I never heard a discussion, and you didn't ask me yet, about the origin of the virus, about the funding of the research of the virus. This was not something that I ever heard or was involved in. I never heard it talked about. I'm not sure it was spoken about or not. I'm sure it's likely things were spoken about in other, other uh, you know, meetings or environments that but I was just not, not with you. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, I loved. I'll, we well, let me ask you right away then about. So you just you know made a comparison. There's media propaganda related to COVID. Talk about that. Well, okay. There's a very uh, eye-opening study. I think we all are aware as thinking individuals that we see and saw a tally of cases uh, every day uh, as if a bomb was ticking. Uh, and again, we're not. no one's minimizing that uh, now over 750,000 deaths have been attributed to COVID. I'm certainly not. In fact, that was why I went, because the strategy that was being used was a failure. It was a gross failure people died and it and it, uh, it, it continued despite it being a gross failure. Uh, but the problem here is that the media played a role in inciting fear and fear and panic uh, is dangerous for the obvious reasons, uh, but also for the psychological harm. Uh, in fact, uh, what we see from a study published in late, late 2020 from I think Dartmouth and Brown, if I'm not mistaken, National Bureau of Economic Research analyzed the media reporting of the American mainstream media and the English-speaking mainstream media outside the U.S. And there's a dramatic difference. Even though the world was experiencing roughly the same issues on the pandemic, uh, about half the stories were quantified as negative from non-American media, 50 53%. 90-plus percent were negative about the pandemic, by these objective criteria uh, that Mm -hmm. they used in the American mainstream media about schools opening. The same thing, 50% negative in the non-American English-speaking media, 90-plus percent negative in the American media. And another eye-opening statistic, the number of stories talking about cases going up in the American media outnumbered the number of stories about cases going down by five to one, even when cases were going down. Even during periods where cases were going down, the stories outnumbered those stories, the stories about cases going up by five to one. 
there was a so the perception that people have of that, you know, someone who follows news, I kind of got that perception myself, but you're saying that's backed by legitimate, you know, data analysis of the news. That's exactly right. It really right. was it's as not, bad as it felt. <laughs> it's not just a gut feeling that mm. the uh, the media was was just really an outlier in a negative fashion and really caused tremendous harm not just by uh, inciting fear and panic, but they, they sort of did that, you know, with people like me, too, because undermining my credibility uh, and making it seem repeatedly saying the president was li wasn't listening to the scientists. It's a complete lie. I just showed you that he was listening to more scientists than the task force. Uh, because I had outside experts come in speaking to the president and vice president, who were the, some of the most famous people in the field doing the actual research. Yet that sort of false accusation uh, was perpetuated in the media in a very vicious way. I saw it for myself. Uh, and, you know, it's despicable. I think our media is really a, a serious uh, a serious negative at this point in our country. And, and it's a threat to a free country uh, if you want to talk about those big issues. So if you're old enough, you'll remember how back in the early 2000s, Blackberries just revolutionized the way we communicate. But it wasn't long before Steve Jobs and Apple, of course, thought they could outperform them with a phone of their own. In an all new season of Business Wars, you'll hear about how Blackberries and iPhones battled for their shares of the emerging mobile phone market. It seems standard now, but Blackberry's ability to allow users to text and send emails was a major game changer at the time. They really were the first mobile devices that could sync work emails to a phone. So for the first time, people weren't chained to their desks. So as the gold standard, every power player from D.C. to New York City to L.A. had a BlackBerry. But just when they thought they had the market cornered in 2007, Apple came in and launched the iPhone. On Business Wars, iPhone versus BlackBerry, you'll hear how BlackBerry, the phone favored by presidents, Wall Street, and top government officials, spurred Apple to push the envelope by developing technology that would usher in the future of phones, putting the power of smartphones in the pockets of billions worldwide. This is a fascinating story. There's so much relevance to today when we look back and see how this battle developed. I can't recommend it enough. Listen to the Business Wars iPhone versus BlackBerry podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. We're happy to be sponsored today by the Novus Society at Donors Trust, a program for aspiring philanthropists that can help you get started as a young giver and connect you to like-minded peers. So with the holidays around the corner, you are likely starting to reflect on all you've achieved this year and even maybe those things that slipped through the cracks. As you begin this period of reflection, consider taking another look at what you're doing with your charitable giving. Do you normally wait until the end of the year and frantically punch in credit card numbers before the ball drops? Maybe you missed your year-end giving entirely. That is until New Year's resolutions are all anyone is talking about and you vow that this year you will make time for giving. If that sounds like you, you should talk to the folks at the Novus Society at Donors Trust. Novus Society is a program for young philanthropists under 40 to dip their feet into strategic charitable giving so their gifts can make a larger impact all while making things easier and simpler. With Novus Society, you get a team of trusted philanthropic advisors to help you learn how to develop your giving goals and strategy for long-term success. A community of peers who share your principles, as well as access to the fastest growing giving tool on the market, a donor-advised fund. Donor-advised funds can help you simplify your giving as well as maximize your tax advantage. Make giving a priority this year by letting Novus Society at Donors Trust help you level up your charitable goals. Go to novussociety.org slash federalist. That's novussociety.org slash federalist to see how Novus Society can help you grow your impact as a young philanthropist. And now, so, uh, you know, we published an article maybe a week or two ago. I, it must have been before Thanksgiving, so maybe two weeks, but by um, two of the authors of the Great Barrington Dec Declaration, Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Kulldorff, um, talking about how they had met with President Trump at the White House, I think probably possibly during the time that you were there. Well, I was the one that got them in. Yes. Okay. I, I was the one who set the meeting up. Yes. Okay. So, but they, but they said in that op-ed that actually it was their failure to convince the president that led them, you know, a couple months later 
order to issue the Great Barrington Declaration. So can you, you know, talk a bit more about why do you think President Trump ultimately didn't take your and their advice, you know, and, and that came out, you know, the kind of policy prescriptions that were, you know, released in the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, why didn't the president go for that? What, or, and also you know, related, why didn't he also fire Fauci and Burks, who, if Burks is going around, you know, telling governors what to do, basically, you know, they're directly the, you know, the reason that people like me out here in the States feel completely oppressed. Right. Well, so, you know, this is a very complicated question because mm -hmm. the president uh, understood it as his common sense way that the lockdowns were destructive, that schools should open, okay? In March, uh, when they did this 15 days to slow the spread policy that turned into, you know, two years to slow the spread, uh, you know, that, that, okay, the initial shutdown was probably, you know, reasonable for 15 days. I think everyone was all in on it. We didn't know much about the infection fatality rate, although even then we knew it was grossly exaggerated uh, because of error. Uh, but in any event, um, so the answer to why he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't listen, it's not really true that he didn't listen. He said we should open up. He said we should uh, focus the protection. And he, when I got there, uh, uh, he reinitiated his press conferences. The, mm -hmm. the months before I was there, first he was with Drs. Fauci and Burks, and then they ended up discontinuing the press conferences. I guess they were... I don't know why I wasn't there. When I came back, I, I thought, okay, the, the country needs to know the president's on top of the data and he needs to speak to the people about the data. And uh, he was saying for months, we should safely open, safely open the schools, safely open the businesses. It's destructive and harmful to have the lockdown. He was saying that since May, but he yes. kept, kept on the payroll and in the public eye, the people who were completely undermining that's that. That's right. And, and that's right. And so uh, there's a there's a nuance of a difference to what you originally asked, which was not that he didn't listen. Uh, he did understand the policy uh, appropriateness and the uh, of opening safely and how it was destructive, severely destructive and harmful to keep things locked down. But what he did not do uh, was uh, eliminate uh, the wrong advice coming out of the White House task force. Now, the White House task force, again, uh, was what the medical side was run by Dr. Dr. Burks. And, you know, the problem here is that you know, uh, everyone's a, a human being. Uh, and when you have a, a person in government who's a politician or, or even an anti-politician, but holding a government office, uh, you know, they, they have to, they should, you would think, common sense, defer to the medical quote unquote experts. And so they had people, they were appointed and these people commandeered the policy. Okay, no matter what the president said, the policy that was offered to the governors and to the nation by doctors mm -hmm. Burks and Fauci was the lockdown. No matter yep. what uh, anyone says uh, about whatever the president said, that was the policy and that was yep. the policy that was implemented. So yes, uh, you know, uh, if I were president, I, I, I would have probably said, you know, we, you know, we need to uh, take hold of the policy. Uh, this was an election year. I, I, you know, it's very complicated. People were, I, I think, sort of intimidated that were non-medical by the medical people. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of guessing. I'm not accusing any individual of being intimidated. But what I am saying is it's complicated, and I think errors were made to keep these people on, frankly. And we know it because the policies were wrong, and they were allowed to, to continue them, and they're still continuing it. Right. I mean, so if you know lockdowns kill people, they create excess deaths above and beyond what the pandemic is kind of locked in to kill, then you would say, why would you not do everything possible to end them, you know, to implement the focus protection approach for the vulnerable and then put kids back in school, demand that as, you know, condition of COVID funds, whatever else you can do, you know, to literally save lives. Yeah. And, and I have a couple more comments to make on this, which is that, you know, I had been talking about targeted protection since March of 2020, mm -hmm. uh, as Johnny Anides had done right before I did. And I was mm -hmm. speaking to people like Johnny Anides and, you know, because this is common sense. We know who's at risk. We know who's low risk. We should protect the people with extreme diligence who are at high risk and not destroy people who are at low risk. And what was done was the opposite. What was done was there was inadequate protection of the mm -hmm. people at high risk. 
How do we know? Because we knew who they were. They were in confined environments in nursing homes. Nursing homes are always, always, always a hotbed of infection when there's even regular flu. When even someone has a cold in a nursing home, there's documented outbreaks of death from Mm -hmm. viruses and serious illness. And so um, that should have been done. And in fact, when I got to the task force, I think the first meeting that it was brought up when I said, we're not that we need to do more to protect the elderly. And everyone got upset with me in the room. And so we're doing everything we can because of course these people had their name on the policy for the previous seven months. Mm-hmm. And so it's a human nature to defend what you've done, I guess, but it's wrong because they, I said, how many times are you testing the nursing home staff? And they said once per week, that's the recommendation. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what? it should be three times a week, every single day, five days a week, easily all the cases in nursing homes, almost all, came in through the staff. That was known. That's obvious, it's common sense because the staff are living outside the nursing home. And in fact, many staff work at multiple nursing homes. So if anyone is infected in the United States, they go and they populate multiple nursing homes with an infection. And so that kind of, I mean, that was not rigorous uh, policy to protect the elderly. And and many Mm -hmm. things that I did work very well with some people, I should say, uh, to increase the protection of the elderly, particularly, I want to say, Seema Verma, the head of Medicare and Medicaid, was willing to listen and work with me. And she was very good at, and we did increase the testing frequency. We did increase and correlate increased testing in nursing homes to high levels of activity of the infection in the community. We got increased tests sent to senior centers where people frequented who were old and high risk, but not necessarily in a residential nursing home. We got increased tests, me and some of the other people on the policy side, got increased tests sent to historically black colleges and universities because their faculty are higher risk. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, th- these kinds of things were, were, were done later. Uh, you know, when, when, during the time I was there, uh, they, the task force itself, uh, the Dr. Giroir got more point of care tests to the nursing home with Seema Verma. They were uh, very intent on getting it done. So that, that was done. There were good things done. But uh, for months, there was inadequate protection of the elderly. And, you know, this is not just the U.S., by the way. I mean, mm-hmm. Sweden, which is a rational place for what was done, not perfect, though. 70% of deaths in Stockholm were in nursing homes at one point. I don't know what the final tally is. But, I mean, they did a very bad job protecting the known high risk. And the Swedish health ministers admit this uh, in interviews. So, you know, there was a lack of common sense. It doesn't take a genius. It doesn't take a doctor. It doesn't take anything except common sense to say we know who's at risk. Let's protect those people as best as possible. That was not done. Let's dive right into this lightning round that I talk about of ask the doctor we can trust questions about COVID. Um, So try to give, you know, rapid response here. I think I've got, you know, maybe seven, you know, we've got 15 minutes left. So, so a friend who is working to try to get rational COVID legislation passed in Indiana, she asked, can you explain what we know about natural immunity to COVID-19? How long is it good for and how does it compare to vaccine-derived immunity? Yeah, natural immunity is very good after recovery from an infection. And that would have been shocking if it wasn't. That's basic immunology, virology. We've had, by the way, decades of experience with coronaviruses. This is one of four, one of, there are four other circulating coronaviruses. So uh, the, the data shows that people who've had an infection or recovered have very good immunity. There's a Cleveland Clinic study that showed almost no reinfection. Uh, there's a, a, you know, after uh, which they did up to six months, there's studies showing bo- uh, long-term memory immunity after eight months on bone marrow biopsies. This was known you know, months and months ago. This is not new knowledge. And there's good data on a comparison study in Israel that shows this is the best study of all on the comparison that shows a 27-fold increase in symptomatic COVID infections in people who've been vaccinated but never infected compared to people who've not been vaccinated but have had recovery from COVID. 27-fold increase in symptomatic COVID cases in the vaccinated but never infected. Eight-fold increase in hospitalizations in the vaccinated but never infected compared to those who've recovered from COVID. And so uh, the Sweden study 
by the way, a recent study showed that, uh, you know, even the vaccines have very long, good protection against death so far. This is what the data shows from the studies that that I've seen. The best study, the most recent is Sweden. Uh, We haven't had the vaccines for a long time, so we have to be careful here. But Mm -hmm. the uh, protection of the vaccines against death seems to be very good, even for as long as we've had them, let's just say nine months, eight months. Um, but it does wane in the Sweden study for people who are over 80. It wanes to about 50% protection. 50% protection isn't bad. Uh, but it's just people who are over 80. Okay, so that's the vaccine. Natural protection, there's no evidence that it wanes yet. We don't know. We haven't studied mm-hmm. this for a long period of time. As long as we know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the natural immune, and again, it would have been a shock to think that you do not have protection after recovering from an infection like this. It would have been a shock. It would have been counter to all known uh, viral uh, literature and the science, all known immunology. Uh, and, and, and frankly, uh, it, it isn't unexpected. Uh, in fact, it's true. You have great protection and it looks like better than those who've been vaccinated but never infected. That's what Another it looks friend like asked a related point. question. Um, so she says the, the European Union's digital vaccine cards, which, by the way, I don't know how vaccine you know, passports make sense if the vaccination immunity you know, goes down over time. You know as much but so those the cards in the eu have three categories to show that the traveler is okay to move one you're vaccinated two you've recovered from covid and three you've tested covid negative so what accounts then for the american medical community's refusal to consider the benefits of natural immunity when this is not at all controversial as you just said either in all accepted medical history you know literature history Mm -hmm. or therefore in european countries because our country's uniquely off the rails, and I don't know how to say it any other way. I mean, we have people that are completely irrational and denying fundamental science that are in charge of our public health leadership. That's just they, these people are, uh, you know, and, and you know, there's there's a lot more than just one. Uh, they are denying. They're everywhere. What is known. They are denying science. They, we are the only country of our peer nations that just simply ignores the protection from natural immunity and pretends, which is com- a complete lie, that the only protection- well, the only is explanation that you can come up with for that is political reasons. Uh, the, you know, uh, I don't think it's a why is very difficult. Um, yeah. You know, it could you have there to are read the conflicts of interest. There, uh, I don't know. I don't want to accuse anybody of anything nefarious because I just don't know what other people's motives are. I think there's a tremendous amount of uh, ego saving hubris. You know, you've been on record as saying this for months and now yeah. all of a sudden you're never going to admit you're wrong. I mean, I like to say it took the Catholic church 359 years to say that the earth moved. Galileo was right. I don't think the lockdowners of the United States are ever going to admit they're wrong. Wow. That, we're in trouble if that's the case. Some other friends want to know about COVID in children. So as longtime Federalist listeners and readers know, because we've covered this, you were one of the earliest and the bravest doctors to use your platform to tell the truth about the data about kids and COVID. So right now, you know, this, you know, months later, years later, what do we know is the risk of COVID to children and the degree to which they're vectors of the disease? And then given that, how should we think about how um, Fauci, Dr. Fauci has advised that we treat children during these waves of variants? And then the yes. second one that people want to know about COVID and kids um, is, are they at risk for what is called long COVID? So mild mm-hmm. you know, symptoms if they get it, but then maybe later something horrible pops up two years later on their bodies. Sure. So the first set of questions is about the risk to children and from children. And that is known. It's been known since March of 2020. It's never changed. There's no new data. There's the the excuse of, oh, we learned. No, we didn't learn. We knew then. We Mm -hmm. knew it when I started writing about it in the spring of 2020, which is that children, healthy children, have extremely low risk for the disease, for serious disease, and have almost no risk of dying. Healthy children. Healthy people under 20 have extremely low risk from the disease and extraordinarily low risk from dying from COVID. And so uh, this is known, it's proven all over the world, not just in Europe, not just in all other civilized countries, but in our own country, that's a fact. And anybody who thinks otherwise has disqualified themselves from being just a, a normal thinking person. Now, in terms of risk from children, this is also known. It was proven 
back in the spring of 2020. Uh, I wrote about it, and it was known from other countries, from contact tracing studies uh, in, in at least a, a 10 or 12 countries. Children are not significant spreaders of COVID. Okay, when you get kids in schools getting COVID, it's almost always because an adult brought it in. Uh, this is known. It's also known that teachers do not have a higher risk of COVID than any other profession because they get their illness, of course, from outside the school. Teachers are a low risk profession. If you wanted to design a job where you were actually in a low risk setting, you'd say, hey, I wanna be a K through 12 teacher. So, uh, you know, that's insane what we've done with, uh, with all these extra rules in schools. It's completely opposite. Uh, it's really on the level of saying the earth is flat. That's but, why I'm but laughing. It, but it purvey, it, it really carries the day in the United States, particularly. Uh, the second part of long COVID is a very interesting question because there's no doubt that, that uh, people get long, vague symptoms, fatigue, uh, you know, headache, uh, you know, variety of things. Uh, they get it in, in many viruses. Okay, this is known. Every doctor should know this. It's not a shock, but they never say it to the public. Uh, I'll give you a good study that was done in the University of Oxford. They took, I think, a thousand people who had COVID and a thousand people who were proven to never have had COVID this year, but had the flu. And about 30 percent of people who had the flu, but not COVID, proven to not have COVID, 30 percent of them had symptoms of long COVID. And about 34, 35 percent had symptoms of long COVID who had COVID. What does that mean? It means that, A, other viruses have it which we knew anyway. But secondly, it means uh, and lends uh, some credence to the fact that maybe it's not specific to COVID at all. And now I'm gonna tell you two studies, one from Switzerland and one from Germany in students. The same percentage of people had long COVID symptoms who had nothing in terms of a viral illness as the ones who had COVID. Okay, <laughs> so that means I like to call it a long lockdown. Because we know, and that, that sort of, it's not really a joke. Uh, it, it, it sort of is, but it's not meant to be because honestly, lockdown had a massive psychological harm. You know, we have of, of, teen, of people 18 to 24 in the US, besides all these psychological visits and psychiatry, uh, you know, doctor visits, 52% of people in the United States, 18 to 24, had an a, a unwanted weight gain, more than half of college-age kids during the lockdown, and that weight gain averaged 28 pounds. Okay, that's not, that's not just insignificant. That's a massive healthcare crisis. Okay, you had, uh, you know, 50%, half of college-age students in a, in, the, in a recent survey said they were fearful of all social interaction. There's tremendous psychological harm done. We have, in my view, severely harmed an entire generation here. That's on the hands of the people who advised the lockdowns and implemented And the people who complied, I would say. Well, I mean, there were two things that really shocked me. Hmm. Uh, one is the power of the government to just hmm. simply shut down everything. Uh, businesses, schools, restrict you to your home, stop you from seeing your parents. But the second shock was that people acquiesced to these really arbitrary, draconian, pseudoscience uh, policies that were shown and also shown to be ineffective and violated all common sense and logic. I'm going to ask you that with my last question. But before that, we'll do one more and then we'll move on to my last question. So this it goes back to COVID questions. Um, so another friend writes, given that it appears the vaccines don't prevent you completely from getting COVID or spreading COVID, what are your thoughts on moving society to vaccinating to prevent severe side effects and death, and then focusing on, as well on other treatment options? And in, in that case, then what would you say other treatment, what kind of other treatments would you consider best in class? Sure. So, uh, you know, it goes to a couple of core issues here. Number one, the vaccines I, I sort of alluded to is, but the protection against getting infected wanes dramatically after three or four to six months. OK, after, say, four to six months, your drop in protection to get infected and therefore to spread is extremely low. Yet your protection of the uh, of your vaccinated against death or serious illness is still high. Therefore, it, I like to think of it as this is a 
privately protective vaccine, but it's not much in the way of publicly protective. The purpose of this vaccine, the results of this vaccine are you're protecting yourself, but after six months, you're really not protecting others. And so the notion that you must be vaccinated to protect others is false on the virtue of that and by virtue of the fact that if you're afraid, get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if the next guy next to you got vaccinated. So um, that's the protective effect. In terms of uh, should children have vaccines, I think that's a different equation because Mm -hmm. if your risk from the disease is extremely low, if you're a healthy child, which is true, that's factually true, uh, and you're going to take a, why would you take a vaccine for a disease that is not a significant risk to you uh, and it's not for preventing spread uh, to others? We just said that. And there's risk to the vaccine. How do we know? Because it's reported. Uh, we also have a lot of, uh, we have a lack of safety data on long term on the vaccine. The vaccine's only been around for less than a year. Vaccine mm-hmm. safety data takes five to 10 years to get a full handle on. And we know that there are in uh, reports of uh, side effects that we're still trying to get a handle on the uh, frequency of like myocarditis in, in young boys or males, young teenagers. So um, there's a lot of reasons why uh, the idea that you should mandate a vaccine on school children, uh, for instance, or even get a vaccine or even do the clinical trial. I think there's a question there uh, that you have to there's a there's a calculation there. People need to be critical thinkers and think if that makes sense. Um now, the other uh, question, your, your second part of your question was on drug treatments, and I'll, I, that's a big issue because of, I think, the biggest, one of the big sins of the whole public health leadership has been this incredible focus, just like they did on stopping one infection at the, at the expense of every other illness and get killed people. But they also focused on a vaccine instead of doing the appropriate clinical trials on readily available drugs. So it's a year, well over a year ago, a year and a half ago, we could have had the answer in well-designed trials on drugs like, you know, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, et cetera. These are safe drugs because they're used in human beings. They're FDA approved. That's not a question. So the question is, do they work in this illness? And that... Mm -hmm. Uh, there's evidence that it seems like they should, because if you look at the way they work in a lab, it should work because of their what's called mechanism of action in a laboratory model. And then you look at because of how they work on the cell and the virus uh, itself. And then you look at the reports and they said, hey, maybe there's some promising data there. But the clinical trials were never done. In fact, fear was uh, instilled into people. There were doctors were forbidden from using it. People refused to be even enrolling in the clinical trials. That was a real uh, of uh, uh, one of the biggest public health errors and really a heinous error by the people in charge in the agencies that should have done the clinical trials. So here's my last question, and you've alluded to this several times throughout this conversation. It's that at this point in the COVID response, 20, 21 months in, people have a history of what they have done, what they've supported, you know, um, and, and, and they've made choices that evidence really shows didn't help. Many people have made choices that evidence shows really didn't help or was actively harmful. Um, but it's really painful to admit you're wrong, especially when there could, you know, it could be, um, you know, deaths on your hands, this, you know, psychological pain of just saying I was wrong as well, you know, as well as at, at my wrongness could have hurt people really badly. So for the sake of the historic way of American life that's been completely erased, as you mentioned, um, with the COVID shutdowns and all the rules I've put on this, we have to shift public opinion on allowing to government to do anything, almost anything it wants without limits in the name of COVID. How do you think we can do that when there's this massive psychological blocks for so many people to change their minds about what they've done? Yeah, that, that's that's a, uh, uh, you know, a tough uh, question to answer. I think that there's been a lot of uh, bad uh, players in this whole thing. One has and, and this is what needs to be solved, because the public, uh, first of all, as as a public, we have lost trust and rightfully so in what we used to think were experts. We have we should have lost trust by now. These people have been erratic, denying the facts, denying simple logic. Uh, People that have a credential are not necessarily experts. If they don't know how to think, then they're not experts. So that means the burden of critical thinking has shifted to the individual. We have to become critical thinkers. We as Americans, as citizens of the world, have to understand there's a burden on us 
the information's there. It may be comp complicated. We have to take it upon ourselves to dissect uh, the information, to be critical thinkers, to look at people who are consistent uh, and maybe trust them, to look at people who are speaking about the data and citing the facts and listen to them. You know, the way you judge anyone is credible. This has to be done now for these health problems. The second part is that science has become... Uh, uh, really unreliable and politicized. We've seen the scientific journals publish smears, character smears, false declarations of consensus that were clearly not uh, consensus and not science about the origin of the virus, for instance, about all kinds of things. And our journals have been uh, really uh, badly harmed in terms of their own credibility, and rightfully so. And so this politicization of science, I think we need to get a much more... Uh, a situation where the free exchange of ideas is available. We will never solve a complicated problem without allowing debate, without allowing the free exchange of ideas. That does not just mean don't fire somebody. That's not freedom of a, a speech. What we find is that the censorship, the censure, the smearing is very effective. That's why they do it. I know it because I got you know, thousands of emails from all over the country, but more than 100 scientists, I would estimate, from the U.S. and elsewhere that were saying to me, including some at Stanford, that were saying to me, Scott, keep speaking, keep speaking out. You're exactly right. We're afraid to come forward. So this has to change. We need to stop this. We need to make sure that universities stop their uh, bizarre and reckless politicization, their, uh, their uh, character assassination, their censure, they cannot just simply say they're for freedom of speech and do what they do. That's like saying I'm for si I'm the science, uh, but then not knowing, not understanding, or not using the science. And that kind of really, it's both cowardice and uh, incompetence. Uh, we have the wrong people in leadership positions. Maybe I should end on that. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> um, doc, uh, Dr. Scott Atlas, you can get his new book. Pre-order it now. My favorite place to get books is bookshop.org. You support your local bookseller that way. It's called A Plague Upon Her House. You can just search uh, Dr. Scott Atlas's name. Dr. Atlas, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me.